Welcome to the East Main Media Podcast, a series of conversations featuring leaders in a variety of subjects, including business, politics, media, and the arts. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com forward slash podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. Now here's your host, Brian Brodor. So first and foremost, I want to ask you about Missy's Miracle. We actually have originally met prior to this podcast at the NJ Sharing Network 5K, and you participated in a TV interview that my crew was involved in. Mm -hmm. So we've met previously, and of course, uh, we welcomed you in today to talk about a few different things. So right off the bat, tell me, what is Missy's Miracle? Missy's Miracle is a college scholarship available in every single high school in the state of New Jersey. And what we look for in our scholarship applicants is candidates who have been very actively involved with promoting organ donation and awareness about organ donation. So the people that apply for my scholarship either are friends and family of organ donors or organ recipients, sometimes both. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, the girl that won my scholarship this year, her cousin was an organ donor, but then her other cousin was an organ recipient. So in order to receive my scholarship, it go through a very rigorous application process with filling out forms and essay writing. And um, I have a committee that I work with to choose the finalists. Sometimes we choose more than one because the stories are just so compelling. But in a nutshell, it's, as I said, a scholarship in every high school in the state of New Jersey awarded to someone or multiple people who are very committed to promoting awareness about organ donation. Now, let me highlight that specific detail, which is it's available to every high school in the state. That's a pretty wide-ranging scholarship. How many schools is that? I don't know. I don't do the admin. It's a lot because it's public and private. Right, yeah. So as opposed to a handful or some kind of top echelon of students, no, this is wide-ranging. This is a, a huge, really a huge lift. It's a huge effort on you and your team's part. And um, one of the biggest things that I really want to highlight is that this is has nothing to do with financial need. I never ask anyone about financial need. That should have nothing to do with being an advocate for organ donation. Right. So someone who won my scholarship last year, I have no idea if they have need or not financially. doesn't matter. They've done their job in fulfilling what I am looking for to award the money to. the criteria. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, just basics. Where can someone find out more information about applying or fundraising for it? Two very different answers. Yes. To find out about how to receive my scholarship, you just go to your high school guidance counselor's office. Every high school has a list of scholarships available. Another way that you can find out about my scholarship would be through... New Jersey Sharing Network and New Jersey Sharing Network on their website has 
my scholarship written on there and what you would need to do. And basically it would say, go to your high school guidance office. (laughs) Um, And that's where the application could be found. Fundraising is all me. That has nothing to do with the recipients of my scholarship at all. That is entirely me. And I don't have a background in fundraising whatsoever. It's hard work fundraising. Um, You have to come up with creative ways to get people to donate money. And especially now I've been doing this for four years. And it's one thing the first year people donate to you but to now dip into that same pool of my friends over and over you don't want to get burnout and feel repetitive with my friends saying oh we've already donated to missy's miracle we don't need to keep on doing it it's not our responsibility to fund her scholarship so i really try to come up with new and innovative ways to fundraise that people feel like they're getting something for the money that they're donating So whether it's the 5K that they're participating in or this past year, I started the first annual and we're going to continue Missy's Miracle Night at the Devil's Game. So they give an amount of money for, let's say, the price of the ticket. It was $100 this year, which I didn't make a lot of money at all. But for $100, they got to see a Devil's Game, ride on the Zamboni, and included $20 worth of food and drinks. So I sort of think it was a good deal. (laughs) Oh, they had a meet and greet with a player and got autographs with the player and got to tour the locker room. Well, the Zamboni ride alone, I think, for me, is worth $100. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So um, I didn't want to price it too high because I feel badly. But at least this way, for their $100, they got an experience. Sure. I'm thinking about this year doing a sixth grade three-on-three basketball tournament. Oh, wow. In my sixth grader's gym uh, where he goes to school. Mm -hmm. I think that way if people pay for tickets to participate and pay for tickets to just be part of the audience, at least they're getting something out of it. Sure. We've done a lot of things like that. We do street fairs. We do T-shirt sales. We do bake sales is a big one in the school. I don't know. I just try to think of ways for people to donate money that doesn't seem like that I'm greedy. Let me go back to the beginning for a second. Tell me about how Missy's Miracle started. You know, what was Missy's Miracle? I was the first 10-year-old to have a successful liver transplant. And that was in 1985. Hmm. I was never sick as a child. I just sort of woke up one day in liver failure and was transferred to four hospitals in four days that didn't know what to do. And basically I was going to die. They were they were doing all of the prayers for, I guess, upcoming death. I I don't know the terminology for that. And I was going to be dying any minute. And at that time, liver transplants were sort of experimental in pediatrics. And I had a few places that I could go to see if I could even be eligible for a liver transplant. And the closest one was in Connecticut. So I was ambulanced to Connecticut solely because of time factors and proximity. 
And it just so happened that right then and there, a little boy from Chicago passed away. And Chicago was the furthest place that I could get a liver from because it can only be out of the body for a certain amount of time. And so I got to Connecticut at Yale New Haven Hospital and had a liver transplant. Now, that obviously is a, seemingly a miracle, that yes. of just of the timing alone mm-hmm. of all that. Mm-hmm. Everything you just described, somewhat matter-of-factly, mm-hmm. is really realistically part of a huge machine of process. Just everything of the medical experience, never mind a 10-year-old, of anybody going through such a serious condition and dealing with diagnoses and as as you said being in such serious condition and then going forward to Connecticut where by pure happenstance a young boy passes and you're eligible now i guess i'd like to ask of your thoughts can you relate your experience as a 10 year old you know how much were you dialed into what was happening and how much were you kind of Obviously scared, I suppose, but along for the ride. Can you relate that at all for me? When they first told me, would I be interested in having a liver transplant? I said, absolutely not. I'm not having Completely a dead foreign. person's organ in my body. No, not happening. Right. Can you give me a sense when you said it was happening so quickly? How quickly was this? Four days. From all of this that you described? Yes. From becoming ill? Yes. Wow. Well, there was a couple days after the four days, I was stabilized for a few days before they took me to Connecticut. I was stabilized for a couple of days in in New York City because there was no hospital in New Jersey that could keep me. Wow. Now that's with really full on liver failure, right? Uh, 100% liver failure. And that's when the rabbi was there doing the prayer saying, there's no hospital here. We're, We're at the end. Yes. So, yes, I was stabilized, brought to New York for a few days, and that's when they brought up the idea of maybe I would be eligible for a liver transplant. And I said, no, it's just not happening. Now, is this, this isn't with the young boy who's passed. This is, no, that hasn't happened yet. Conceptually. This is exactly. Wow. Wow. Then I guess something happened with me that I had to be rushed right away to Yale. And, In New York, I remember being just really ugly and really sterile and no warmth at all. And I recall getting out of the ambulance in Connecticut into a children's hospital. Mm. And the wallpaper was bright and cheerful. And it looked like it was a place for kids. Mm. And they brought me to my room And the nurse, I remember her name, Kathy Murphy, showed me that in my room, and I'm aging myself here, I could have a VCR and watch movies. And here I am in my bright colored room that looked like kids and everyone was happy and and I don't even recall if I ever did watch a movie. But it was there. But the fact that I felt like I was at a warm, nurturing place. Then when they said to me, you have the opportunity right now to have a liver transplant. There was a boy in Chicago that just died. We're going to ask you again, do you want to have a liver transplant? And I said, yes. 
I mean, you would have been getting even more sick. I mean, you were you well, were it was very then, ill. It was that now or never. I definitely would have died because when they went to take out my liver, I had no liver left. So if I didn't have that transplant at that exact moment. End of the line. Yes. Looking back on that now, can you tell me how the process has changed in these years? I mean, obviously, at least personally, I've been, luckily not with my own son, but I have been through my television work in several pediatric wings and divisions and hospitals. And, and they are, as you describe, they've made them more welcoming and more child-friendly in the environment, warmer and, and, and happier. I guess my question is this, being so involved in the organ donation community through NJ Sharing Network and other outlets, can you tell me a little bit about how that community and, and those services in that world, how has that changed over these years? Ironically, I actually cannot. The reason why I cannot is because I kept my transplant secret for 30 years. Tell me more about that. Obviously, my little town where I grew up knew about it when I was 10 years old. It was a big deal. So this happened when I was 10. In the 80s, the last thing you wanted to be known as was different. I think now people embrace their differences and celebrate their differences. But back then, there was no chance that I was going to be different than anyone else. So I did my best to make sure everyone forgot about me being sick. So this happened in elementary school. And my elementary school was one of five elementary schools that fed into the middle school and the high school. So yes, my little elementary school knew, but by the time we got to middle school and high school, there were four other elementary schools that didn't really know about my background at all. And you wanted and to be a I teenager. And I kept it that right? way. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, I played three varsity sports in high school. I was a really strong student. I was the same as everyone else. No one would have known that I was any different. Now, no reasons for you to act or feel any different either, right? I mean, you, hey, you got a new liver. You've survived this very difficult ordeal. And now you're off and running teenager and... Because I was never sick before my transplant, yeah. I recovered very quickly. My transplant was in March. And in that June, I already went to sleepaway camp wow. for eight weeks. Wow. Um, my parents, I think, were pretty adamant that my doctor was going to say no. So they said, okay, well, we're just going to do whatever your doctor says. And we went up to Yale for a visit, and the doctor said, why can't you go? Yeah, looking good. Right. Have fun. Get blood tests every two weeks or whatever, which they did. I never was that sick person, ever. I woke up one day, had liver failure, had my transplant, recovered. I was in the hospital for eight weeks, which was record-breaking. It was really quick. Now it's not that way. But eight weeks, then went back to school, and that was that. So, I mean, I guess, look, it's understandable that your parents were probably clearly scared from this whole thing. And, and they obviously wanted to protect you, too. So they were probably going to be conservative about it. And here the doctor was like, hey, looking good. Let's go go to camp. Right. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. We'll be right back to the conversation after this brief message from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. 
For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. So off you go. I'm on the way. I want to be teenager. Right. And you keep your secret. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. What changes? What changed was uh, four years ago, I had gallstones. I mean, that's a very common thing. A lot of people had gallstones. I went to the hospital, and it took them a while to figure out that it was gallstones. Once they figured out that it was gallstones and needed surgery, ends up that we find out that my gallbladder was also transplanted. It wasn't my gallbladder. Wait, okay. Right, so not, not the kind of surprise I would, you know, expect once in a while, right? So, um, so it made my recovery really difficult and really painful. I was in the intensive care unit. I was in the hospital for about two weeks. It was just really, really painful mm. and a miserable experience. And then after I came home, I, I couldn't drive for... A long time. I don't even remember, but just as part of the recovery, right? Right, because it became major surgery for me because it wasn't my gallbladder. Let me clear up what I think is the obvious. During your original liver transplant, your gallbladder was also transplanted from the same boy. Yes, at that time they kept it attached. Now they realize that gallbladders aren't essential organs, so they don't. Right. So maybe it was a playing it safe. Uh, who knows? That's just how they did it back yeah, then. Yeah, right. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. But, but nonetheless, you didn't know this. Right. I didn't <laughs> Surprise. Know right. Wow. And all the doctors in the hospital, I remember, were saying it would be impossible that I had gallstones because I wouldn't have a gallbladder. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Because they knew, obviously knew your history. When you were having discomfort that ended up being gallstones. Yes. Were you concerned that it wasn't gallstones? Did you think this is something else? Is it, uh, you I had know, no idea. I need another new liver? Uh, no, I, I don't think like that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I had no idea what was wrong. Wow. But mysteries and mysteries. You got a transplanted gallbladder. Off you go. Okay, so I'm sorry. We got off on the gallbladder tangent. <laughs> so, you know, it's just a minor thing. Right. You know, that mystery gallbladder. <laughs> right. So, you know, phrases never said on this podcast. <laughs> the mystery gallbladder. Okay, so um, you, you So started- my recovery was really very difficult. And transplant patient takes a lot of daily medications. And one of these medications that I take really impedes healing. So Mm. if you're scheduled for a surgery, they have you not take that medication for a couple months and they replace it with something else. But because my surgery was emergency surgery, the gallbladder surgery, emergency surgery, I did not heal well. And it ended up a year later, I developed an incisional hernia and I was freaking out Mm. because the gallbladder surgery was so painful. Sure. But we did what we needed to do. We took me off the medication, put me on the other one. Mm -hmm. And I went in for that surgery, which ironically had zero pain whatsoever. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, well, okay, we'll take that. Good. Uh, Good zero food. pain. I did my pain meds for the surgery very differently. We did a lot of nerve blockers mm. because with the gallbladder surgery, we did nerve blockers afterwards. Uh, so we were always playing catch up to the pain. Mm. This time we planned it. You're so, out of, in front of it. Sort yes, of. yes. Wow. So... When I was recovering from the incisional hernia surgery, I felt so guilty that I was not able to talk to the other transplant patients during my gallbladder surgery because I felt like such a failure. I felt like I had my transplant, but look, I failed again. I had gallbladder surgery and I'm in such pain. So I didn't talk to anyone on the transplant ward whatsoever. I was very unfriendly. Uh-huh. You felt like a failure. Uh-huh. Why? Because here I was having surgery again, and that, I'm supposed to be healthy. Right, but that's not your fault, right? I never identified as a transplant patient after my transplant. I always identified as just a healthy, regular person. Right, you sort of tucked that away, yes. and that's not me. Yeah, I don't come from a touchy-feely family at all. We didn't talk about things. Right. I never went for therapy after my transplant mm. or anything. Now they do all that, which is amazing. But no, it was, I had my transplant, I got better, and that was that. You, do you regret that? No. Or would you? No. Because, I mean, you're a strong person, clearly going through all this stuff. So that's part of your armor, right? I mean, that's part of your strength, right? So here you are, you're in the hospital, in the surgical ward, but as a transplant recipient, historically. Mm -hmm. And let me characterize this, tell me if I'm wrong. So right in the same ward or down the hall, there are contemporary or current transplant recipients. And you isolated yourself. Like, I don't want nothing to do with them. Right. Right. Because I felt... I didn't want them to look at me and think I was a failure. Because you felt that way. You assumed that they would see you that way? Yes, of course. Mm. I was in the hospital having surgery. You're not supposed to do that. Oh, right. Yeah, that's verboten. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So what changed? After the incisional hernia surgery, I was lying there in bed one night, and I had a roommate who couldn't speak a word of English, and I had this strong feeling didn't have any financial means, didn't have any family educated in this whatsoever, and, you know, then having the roadblock of not speaking English, I once again felt guilty, and I said, I've got to do something that I could now give back to other people. Right. So tell me about that specifically. Now, four years going now? Yes. Right? Tell me how that feels to you. Not just the scholarship piece, because that's a very tangible, you do X, Y, Z, you raise money, it goes to kids. That's very simple. But the awareness and the sharing of your ordeal as part of that helping process, how does that feel? When I decided I wanted to have a scholarship, I had no idea how to do this. So that's when I got in touch with the New Jersey Sharing Network that I'd never heard of before. So scholarship was the thing that rose to the top. This is what you decided to do? The reason being is that I am a college counselor. Right, right, right. And so I felt like this is something that I could do. It was marrying my personal life with my professional life. Yeah, I get that. I mean, that was at Within reach, something you knew, you could grab that ring. Yes. Got it. Okay, so 
the vehicle or the environment to do that than was through NJ Sharing Network. Yes. Tell me a little bit about connecting with them. I really had no idea how I was going to do it, and I just Googled mm. <laughs> some information, and New Jersey Sharing Network came up. Now, the obvious question to me is, here you are with this incredible transplant story, but did not have a connection with them. No. Right. So this is Or any other transplant patient ever. Right. So again, back to that kind of isolation piece, right? But now Well, I never wanted to be identified right, with that. Right. Yeah. You weren't quote unquote a, a transplant recipient. I'm still not sure that I am. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> that's, that's for episode two of the podcast. <laughs> Well, that's interesting. So now listen, people like Elise and uh, Joe and the folks at NJ, they'll drag you kicking and screaming into this, right? Yes. So tell me about meeting them over there and how, oh how God, this they're goes. Amazing, 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 amazing. Why? Tell me, tell uh, me. I walk in and it's sort of, I guess, if I was making this into a movie, the foreshadowing of going into Yale, feeling like, oh, this is a place I could get better. The Children's Hospital, walking into New Jersey Sharing Network now as a healthy adult, being greeted by hugs and just warmth and genuine people that cared about my story. Now, up until then, I didn't know I had a story. And once again, I still am not sure, even when you <laughs> called me and said, you know, you heard from my crush that I have an interesting story. I still don't really think I have an interesting story. But New Jersey Sharing Network, wow, what Ooh. a group of people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and even the building, it was a beautiful building you walk into, just all about it really. Now that I'm thinking about it, Yale is like the foreshadowing to being at New Jersey Sharing Network because this is where I guess I'm psychologically healing. There I physically had my surgery, but now New Jersey Sharing Network has allowed me to embrace who I am and be an advocate and get involved with this transplant community that I never knew existed. Tell me what that connection feels like. You know? Oh, it's just so warm. It just wraps you up. The people that work there are just incredible. It's not just a job. Yeah. They feel it. They just have it in them. They make me feel like I belong, which is really special. Which you have resisted clearly, right? I belong I mean, to a million other things, but not the transplant community. Right. You, didn't, you right. haven't wanted that. Right. And now they gave me, I guess, the comfort level to take my identity yeah. and share it. That's what I wonder. What piece of the puzzle do they have that makes that work for you? I've been over there a few times at their, um, is it New Providence? New Providence, right? uh -huh. And they have the meditation garden there mm -hmm, now, which mm -hmm. is lovely. And they do their 5K, one of their 5Ks uh, mm -hmm. based out of that space. If you're speaking to people out there who are considering, should I volunteer for organ donation if something were to happen? And there's the altruistic donation volunteers as well. Mm -hmm. I know that's more rare, obviously. Mm -hmm. But even like Elise's husband has done mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? My biggest thought when it comes to that would be I feel like it's my job to educate people. And once I educate people on organ donation, in my humble opinion, it seems like a very obvious choice. I don't know why anyone wouldn't. So if I do a good job educating someone on what it means to check off the box on your license— they can then make the 
correct, informed decision for themselves, knowing that less than 1% of people that check that box will even be organ donors. Right. Well, certainly people can find out more information about that at njsharingnetwork.org, I think their website is. That is is correct. And I know for a fact that they can learn about Missy's Miracle there, because I think you're one of two scholarships Correct. that are listed on their site. Yes. And of course, as you mentioned, it says, go talk to your guidance counselor. Yeah. Let me wrap up with a question I like to ask all of our podcast guests, which is phone rings and you pick it up and have a conversation, you hang it up and the person on the other end of the phone just solved your biggest problem, challenge or concern. Who was it and what did they solve? I want my kids, my three boys, to be happy. And it's so hard being a parent. I do not know if I'm doing it right. In fact, I'm pretty sure I'm doing it wrong. (laughs) And I hope the person who called me would be this fictitious big sister that I never had, ensuring me that what I'm doing is going to result in my boys being healthy and happy throughout their lives and being well-adjusted adults who positively contribute to society and have productive relationships. That's really what I want. Well, listen, it's been fabulous having you here. Did I answer that question okay? There is no wrong or right answer. Okay. Every answer is the correct answer. I hope I did it okay. I sort of made my own answer. (laughs) Every answer to that question, whenever I ask it, Uh is always different. No one has the same answer. Okay. Which is why I ask it. Okay. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope that my story, although I don't think it's a story, becomes a story to someone else. (laughs) Well, now it's a story. Yes. (laughs) You have no choice anymore. Yes. (laughs) Missy Rodriguez, Missy's Miracle. Thank you. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. This has been a production of East Main Media, hosted by Brian Brodeur. Special thanks to associate producer Morgan Taylor, audio engineer J.P. Conk, senior producer Kayla Galka. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to subscribe and leave us a good rating. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com. And thank you for listening.